People like you, organizations like Rape Check, I love you guys. You are clear for takeoff runway 21 left. Winds are calm. Stand by for the free trans on uniform. It's showtime. Welcome, everybody, to another special edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. I'm Tony Rumfalo. I'm Aaron Rumfalo. And I am Ryan Rumfalo. How you guys doing? Doing good. How are you, brothers? <laughs> good. I'm good, definitely. Um, I'm excited to do well, another podcast, but I'm mainly excited because of our guest we have today. I love having guests on. Oh, we have a special guest today. Mark, are you there? Hi. Yeah, I'm here, guys. Good morning or afternoon. I'm sure it's morning somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is. It is. It's afternoon somewhere, <laughs> too. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very special guest today on the Ramp Check podcast. Um, a, a man of, of many titles, I, I'm going to say. So, uh, United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, retired, um, author, published author, um, entrepreneur, and, um, what was it? Tail dragger extraordinaire. Was that the other knuckle one? dragging tanker pilot? Oh, knuckle. ladies ladies and gentlemen mark hasara mark welcome to the ramp check podcast i pass gas for a living (laughs) (laughs) hey so i never have done what you did (laughs) i I was i was gonna say i do too but i never got paid for it so um (laughs) and your tax dollars paid for it that's the crazy thing Right. Even even better. So, um, if if you guys are getting uh, from the title, ta- or excuse me, um, um, what did you call it again? Knuckle dragger, ta- knuckle dragon yeah. tanker pilot, tanker pilot extraordinary. Knuckle. That's there also the go. name of the book is tanker is tank. My the name of my book is tanker pilot. So that's what I tell everybody: knuckle dragon tanker pilot. For twenty four <laughs> yeah, years, I'm well, a KC one thirty five pilot. Wow, just good stuff. I was going to say, and, yeah. and we'll uh, we'll get into the book here in a little bit because there's so much more we want to cover. Um, but uh, yeah, Mark, why don't you just kind of take it away and kind of give us uh, just kind of give us an overview of, of of what you've done over the last uh, few decades? <laughs> hey, it's great to be on with you guys. Uh, this has come from uh, having lunch with the uh, two of the brothers, and uh, yes. a shameless plug mm-hmm. for Ramp Check Global. I have the Ramp Check Global patch on my visor and my Chrysler 300. So every time I put my visor <laughs> down, there's the Ramp Check Global patch right there. All right, we which love is, it. I think cool you. stuff. So, so all of you uh, have a chance to go through and buy some of their swag. Please do because, like I said, I've got that patch right there and. Uh, it's awesome. It reminds me kind of my history and the things that I used to do and and uh, still stay plugged into. When I was five years awesome. old, I was standing on the hood of my grandfather's car on Aviation Boulevard watching the very first 707s, DC-8s, Lockheed Constellations, Electras, uh, Vickers Vice Count airplanes landing on the south runways at Los Angeles International Airport. And I said to myself, wow. why, 
why work for a living when I can do this? Oh, wow. Yeah. And right. 707s going over your head about 100 feet uh, and so forth. And that's when I was bitten by the aviation bug. And I wanted to fly 707s. Uh, and through high school and everything, I was one of those aviation geeks, you know, that would study airplanes and study the history of aviation, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and just enjoyed the heck out of it. I built plastic model airplanes. I mean, I was the ultimate aviation geek. Okay. Went through pilot training at Vance Air Force Base, ended up going to Pease Air Force Base in KC 135s, which are a model and version of the 707. And for 24 and a half years, mm-hmm. I flew KC-135s, and I'm a veteran of four wars, which is kind of unusual. Desert Storm, wow. Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And I had my camera with me everywhere I went. So my book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, is published by Simon & Schuster. Rush Limbaugh did the forward for me. He's a good friend. And there's 32 wow. pictures that I took while I was uh, at various points in my career. Uh, I had a very unique career. Um, I have 10 cats and traps on eight aircraft carriers. I've even driven an aircraft carrier while it was refueling. Oh, <laughs> replenishing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you're... You've driven a carrier being refueled, and then you've also flown a tanker while you're refueling other aircraft yeah. and so forth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty oh, funny geez. story. That's in that's in the book. But the thing that I I had my camera with me everywhere I went, guys. And I think when I retired, I had four thousand color slides, and some of the oh, really wow. good pictures are in the book. Thirty two pictures in the book of just all kinds of wow. things. Refueling F fourteens. Refueling. Jeez. I'm in an S3 Viking refueling behind another S3 Viking. You know, I've got pictures of that. And uh, like I said, a very well, unique I, career. Uh, amazing. And and I think that's what makes your story so unique, Mark, is that you basically documented these decades yeah. like most people do not, which is amazing, yeah. especially because, I mean, a lot of this and a lot of what you covered was before GoPros were out yes. before you could have, you know, any kind of a, a camera that you could take anywhere. I mean, you actually put the effort in and documented this. And I think that's what makes it so special, to be honest. Agreed. And when I was a, a young lieutenant going through Castle uh, as a young co-pilot, the first thing I did was went out and bought a Minolta Maxim camera. And there you go. It was awesome. a, an old uh, film camera, if you can believe that. But yeah. Uh, when I was on the John F. Kennedy uh, in April of 2002, right after, right after Operation Anaconda, I took 60 rolls of film in five days. Wow. <laughs> well, and, 50, and I noticed 60 how you rolls, say 36 rolls, frames, you know. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, yeah. 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 I, I, had bought another, um, I had bought another Minolta Maxim. And some of those pictures I sent you guys this morning, that, and I told you you guys can use them however you want to, but... Uh, yeah, but I also kept a journal. I kept a really accurate journal while I was gone too of of uh, the things that happened during the missions and and so forth. Uh-huh. I wasn't real good at yeah. keeping a logbook, you know. But the Air Force was marking down all my time, and I cannot I can go back and look at that. But uh, um, some really memorable missions uh, for all kinds of different reasons, uh, and it's not just in combat too. 
it was doing a lot of humanitarian operations uh, uh-huh. throughout the world also mm-hmm. that the tankers get involved with were were moving patients from uh, from a believe it or not a Korean Airlines plane wreck in Guam and uh, oh wow I wow. I talked Whoa. to you guys a little bit about um, what's going on now a lot of people think you know the USS Mercy the USS Comfort have now moved to the two coasts and so forth but a lot of the military has been involved in humanitarian operations and i'd kind of like to start there uh if i could because i want the american people to understand what the military brings to a to a viral epidemic okay and people always say to me people say to me this is really strange you know why is the military getting involved and so forth but uh, let me read you some statistics. Sure. The Nimitz nuclear-powered aircraft carrier can make 400,000 gallons of pure water a day through its desalination equipment on the bottom of the ship. Wow. wow. A day. Jeez, Four, okay. 400,000 400, gallons a day. Gallons. 400,000 gallons of pure <laughs> water a day. Okay. Wow. Okay, uh, let me just let me just let me interject here while you're saying that. Mm-hmm. So those of you who are going into Costco and hoarding all of the bottled water, <laughs> don't worry because the USS Nimitz can take care of that. You guys don't need to hoard <laughs> bottled water. Thank you. Okay, sorry. I had to get that off. Okay, well, hey. No. And, and but if the, if but... I could just really quick mark, I I don't want to interrupt yeah. you again cuz I I want to let you let you say what you're going to say. I'm glad that you are bringing this up um, simply just because, you know, with our listeners and, and getting things out there, we listen to these press conferences and you see all over social media, people like thanking the doctors and the nurses, which I 110% am on board with that because I think it's great what they're doing. But I think because this hasn't been like a, uh, a military type um, thing that has been taking place. A lot of people are forgetting that not only their involvement with this, this, this virus that has hit, but also mm-hmm. these guys are still protecting us from international threats mm-hmm. while all this is going on. So I'm glad that you're bringing this up. I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. And, and that's a, a real good segue into the things that I want to talk about too, because a lot of people don't know you can actually take the electricity through different kinds of lines from the aircraft carriers, nuclear reactors, creating the electricity and send it to shore. Wow. Yeah. But back to the, back to the water. Um, uh-huh. When they had the tsunami in the Southeast Asia, the Abraham Lincoln went down to help, with relief efforts. Okay. And a lot of people were boohooing, you know, you know, from other countries, generals and colonels from other countries. Yeah. You know, the American stupid Americans send an aircraft carrier to uh, a humanitarian relief operation. Okay. And the captain of the ship looked at him and goes, yeah, I have 150 hospital beds, three ICU beds, two quiet rooms. I've got a medical department with 10 officers assigned in there senior medical, general surgeon, anesthetist, nurses, physical therapists, even a psychologist. I can make 400,000 gallons of pure water a day. I can take electricity, put it on shore. 
and I can make my flight deck into a helicopter deck and bring people to and from shore and work on them. Yeah, it's really stupid to bring an aircraft carrier to a humanitarian operation. (laughs) What a horrible idea. I know. And so here's what they did. I'm not kidding you. I've I've listened to the guys that that were involved in this on the Lincoln. They they have plumbers on board, okay? Imagine that. Mm -hmm. They actually plumbed the ship from the water sources up to the deck. And they put 26 faucets, 13 on each side, and went and got a bunch of those five-gallon collapsible uh, uh, water containers. Uh And guys were filling them up, okay? And they were taking them on shore because they didn't have clean water, pure water, at some of these places that got wiped out. And so they were helicoptering in all of this water, you know, Uh, from the deck of the carrier with the big helicopters, the little helicopters. When I say big helicopters, I mean like the CH-53s, little helicopters like the SH-60s, yeah. filled yeah. with water, but but also carrying medical teams. And you have to remember, some of these countries are Muslim countries and aren't yeah. real friendly to us, okay? And there was a particular mm-hmm. town called Bande Aceh in Malaysia, I think it's in Malaysia or Indonesia, that they went to, and they were very... Much aligned with Al Qaeda and their kind of and their and, and that ideology, mm-hmm. and now the mm-hmm. Americans uh-huh. show up. Okay, the American military shows up, and they're they're like, oh, they're coming here to take our kids and kill our women and and and, and, and so forth. But when they saw <laughs> these helicopters landing and and they're setting broken bones and they're bringing them water and everything like that, they're like, mm, maybe maybe something's a little different here. They were really concerned when they took the really critically injured people, put them on the helicopters, and brought them out to the ship, though, okay? Some of them needed some mm-hmm. extra work. But within mm-hmm. a couple days or a couple weeks, they brought them back on shore, you know, fixed and ready to go, okay? And they deployed a survey team to Bande Aceh. And the survey team was like asking, well, what do you think of us now? What do you think, what do you think of us at the beginning, and what do you think of us now? And and they're like saying, well, you know, we were told that you guys were going to kill all of us and, you know, hoard all of our food and everything like that. And now you've brought us water, brought us medical supplies, fixed anybody that was badly injured, you know, uh, checked all of our teeth, all these crazy things in this humanitarian operation off of the Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Wow. That's pretty pretty neat. Yeah. Now, and there's another story. I want to tell you, and I've heard this right from the Admiral's mouth. Joseph Kilkenny was the maritime commander for Operation Katrina and the relief effort. And he was the Mm -hmm. Admiral uh, commander of the Truman Battle Group. And what they did is they took the Truman and the USS Iwo Jima, a large deck amphib, and basically followed Hurricane Katrina up into the Gulf behind it. And they set up mm. the Truman south of New Orleans. Excuse me, I pronounced that wrong. New Orleans. Okay. New Orleans. <laughs> Not, <laughs> New Orleans. Okay. Thank you. And Biloxi, and, and Biloxi Mississippi. <laughs> the, the, the Truman and the New Orleans. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the Truman is south of New Orleans, and the Iwo Jima is south of Biloxi, okay? And they have... Uh, you know, hundreds of people inside these ships, and they've got command and control 
that can go out 250, 300 miles. So they put mm -hmm. an E2 Hawkeye over Nolens, an E2 Hawkeye over Biloxi, and brought in helicopters mm -hmm. from everywhere into Barksdale Air Force Base on C5s, mm -hmm. okay? And what Admiral Kilkenny did was he had to figure out, how am I going to help all these people that are on the roofs? How am I going to find them and everything? And he came up with a very unique solution. He used kill box procedures that we use to hunt armies and tanks. And oh, here's how he oh, wow. did it. Okay. So <laughs> a normal latitude longitude square is 60 miles. Okay. A lat long okay. box is, is 60 nautical miles. Okay. So what you do is you further divide that into four boxes. Northwest corner is alpha. Northeast corner is Bravo. Southwest corner is Charlie. Southeast corner is Delta. So you have one 60 mile box with four 15 mile boxes, 15 mile square boxes in it. All right. Then mm -hmm. you further divide that by what we call keypads. Like on your phone, you throw out the letter zero. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So if I tell you go to Killbox 88 Alpha Keypad 5, it means go directly to the center area of the northwest box. You understand? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's yep. okay. Genius. And it's easy. <laughs> yeah, it's easy, okay? So whenever they told a helicopter, go to 88 Alpha, I use 88 because Killbox 88 was the Killbox over Baghdad during the invasion. Killbox 88 was the... <laughs> kill box that was over the top of of Baghdad. Uh, so if I say go, <laughs> you know, Hilo 5-3, go to kill box 88 uh, alpha keypad 5, he knows that, or she knows that she's going directly to the middle of that box. And now they've got that, you know, that mileage square of the keypad to look at. And what they would do is the pararescue guys inside the helicopter would go to that keypad and then they would just look around for who's ever on the roof, uh, who's in the streets and so forth, you know, and they'd lower these uh, pararescue guys down that could do some some triage and, and, and work some things, you know, and find out who's really critically injured, who's not. And mm -hmm. that's literally how they systematically went through and found the people that were hurt or injured or on their roofs or whatever. In New Orleans and in Biloxi, okay, using killbox wow. procedures. Now, a month or two later, another hurricane came through Houston. All right. And we learned <laughs> the mainstream media does not like hearing killboxes when you're rescuing people. So, right. <laughs> you know, so they called well, them they... rescue box. They renamed them rescue yeah. box. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but they used the close air support nine line. The same comm gear, the same comm format, the same battle format, because it worked yeah. in this situation. And that's, guys, is why the military is so good at this. We can adapt to all these different things. And as some of your listeners may not know, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, uh, the Navy, all have people that are trained in nuclear, biological, and chemical uh, defense. We call them NBC mm -hmm. folks, okay? And these people are trained to go and fight viruses like this, to find the cure, to help people get over it, stuff like that. And they can set up 
<clears throat> you know, these hospitals and decontamination places like in a day, in tents and so forth, all right? And I think you're yeah. seeing some of the guards, the guardsmen and women getting called up, and, and a lot of them are medical folks, but some of them are these nuclear, biological, chemical warfare people that are trained yeah. to deal with these kinds of things and are trained mm -hmm. to fight viruses, you know, because a virus can be used on a battlefield to make people sick, just like people are sick now, particularly respiratory yeah. kind of illnesses, okay? So I want your listeners to understand, you know, if if an aircraft carrier is coming to a, a place near you, don't worry, don't fear this, okay? Because these ships are made to quickly go from combat ops right into humanitarian ops. They've got dental clinics on board. And in the large deck AnFib, they've got four operating rooms off of a central desk, and they can do all the way up to brain surgery inside these things. There's neurosurgeons on board the large deck amphibious assault ships because the Marines are going to get shot or get blown up or whatever, and they can work on them yeah, inside right. the ship. They can work on them right. inside the mm. ship. And during hey, Katrina... Mark, so I have a question. They... Sure. Oh, sorry. There, there's a little delay there. Um. So wouldn't you think then, and this is totally opinion, um, mm -hmm. just for our listeners, if they're not seeing the aircraft carrier, um, that's mm -hmm. probably a good thing because it means maybe yes. it's not to the point where that's needed, correct? Would you say that? Correct. I would say that. Okay. okay. All the, right. I just, the mercy I was just and the curious comfort. about that. Well, and see, here's the thing, okay? And again, this is just Mark Hacera, knuckle dragon tanker pilot opinion, okay? <laughs> <laughs> New Orleans had um, Mardi Gras. So mm -hmm. people are saying that may be where the next big outbreak is. That's why mm -hmm. I brought up New Orleans, okay? Mm -hmm. Because <laughs> there may be more cases down there because they felt that they needed to have Mardi Gras, and it's an economic thing because people come in there, but people may have brought this yeah. thing with them. And so it yeah. may balloon down there, okay? And so imagine USS Iwo Jima parking itself a couple miles offshore with, you know, <laughs> 40 helicopters operating on and off its deck and bringing people mm -hmm. out. They can triage 1,500 people in the main deck area, okay? Under the wow, about three, yeah. all right, because they have all the amphibious assault vehicles, the LCACs, and all those things that go off the back of the ship. And and your listeners need to understand the back of a large depth amphibious assault ship folds down with a big gate, and they actually flood the back of the ship so that the Marines can get in their vehicles and go off into the water and go on shore in these propeller driven wheeled vehicles to get on shore. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's so and, cool. Yeah. Uh, it, it is the most amazing thing you've ever seen. And I've been on Iwo Jima, and I have walked around that well deck and actually walked in it, okay? And, uh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> what they'll do sometime, too, when they're deployed is they'll let the well deck, uh, they'll let the, the gate down, all right, the ramp down, and they'll flood it, and they'll have what they call a, a steel beach day where guys are swimming and everything, <laughs> all right, you know, and everything. And uh, there's a really funny that's story awesome. that a guy told me. A real funny story, a guy told me that that a, a shark came into the well deck. And of course that oh, kind of cleared the beach that that kind of cleared the beach out, you know. <laughs> but one of the Marines 
you know, was up there kind of watching everything, went, got his gun, shot the shark, and they had shark oh, steaks geez. for dinner. You know? Oh, <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Leave it to a Marine, you're right. But, <laughs> uh, right. but again, <clears throat> there's mobility here that allows people to go off the back of these ships, go on shore in these vehicles, find people, bring them back to the ship, work on them. And like I said, all the way up to brain surgery, respiratory surgery, all of these different kinds of things, all right? And um, intubate them, do all the things that, that are being done in these hospitals. On board some of these ships that you normally think are wow. combat ships, okay? Yeah, right, mm -hmm. right. You know, I mean, there's dental, what? five dental officers. There's and, and whenever a ship like that leaves for a deployment, they leave with 90 days of supplies on the ship. They don't have to resupply for 90 days. Now, normally, they resupply about every three days uh, mm -hmm. by underway replenishing, which is what I got to do. I, when I was driving the aircraft carrier, we took on a hundred and we took on uh, 300 bombs, 6,000 hamburgers, 6,000 hot dogs, um, and 1.2 million pounds of jet fuel, okay? So they can Oof. keep the flight ops going with the helicopters and everything. And yeah, mm -hmm. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to get that out and, and, and your listeners to hear that so that they understand this is what the military brings to this coronavirus fight. These are some of the things that we can do in the military where we can take a combat ship that could be dropping bombs one day and literally be working on and, and, and doing medical, uh, humanitarian operations like within a day or two. Well, I, you know, I, I love that you bring that up, Mark, because it, it really is. And, and it just really proves the point that, you know, never in the history of the world has there been a superpower like the United States that is, that it has done more good with the power that we have for yeah. our own country and the world. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, you know, you're right. It's not just about, protecting us through war, through our enemies, you know, uh, you know, from our enemies, I guess I should say, but it's, it's protecting us just in the broad sense of, you know, Hey, we need to help, you know, this situation out where we have this capability and adaptable. It really shows how adaptable the United States military is. And that shows how well trained and just, how smart our volunteers are in the military and how smart, you know, all of our officers and, mm -hmm. and, and leaders are. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that that's really put out there enough. No, it's not. And, and, and here's another thing to remember. Okay. I, I want you to remember the 400,000 gallons of pure water a day, but I also want your listeners to remember these decks are being run by 19 and 20 year old kids. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's okay. That's why they have to have six thousand hot dogs and six thousand hamburgers every three days. Okay. Because that's what they eat. <laughs> you know. You know. Yeah. But they make they make twenty thousand meals a day on board the ship. You know. And, yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, it was amazing watching helicopter lettuce and 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 food and milk and and all kinds of crazy things and dropping it on the deck and and going right downstairs into where it needed to be stored. You know, yeah, while I was sitting yeah. in, in the Ox Conning Tower. But 19, sure. 20 year old, you know, kids that have just graduated high school, went into the military, are now 
running these flight decks and are cooking this food and, and our and our corpsmen working in these um, hospital ships and and in the medical sections of the carrier and the large deck amphibs and so forth. You know, I mean, it's sure. it's an amazing thing to see. It really is. Nineteen year old kids, oh, nineteen wow. twenty year old kids. You know, yeah, I personally that's just that's, that's what I'm it. personally proud of. That's what I'm personally yeah, I, proud of. Yeah, I Watching just had a moment where I do this. I kind of just got chills hearing that. It's it's pretty awesome that we have people willing to do those kind of things for our safety and just a good reminder. So thank you for that information. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And I wanted to add, I wanted to add something too here. Um, I, I can't remember if it was you, Mark or Aaron that said, these guys are volunteers. They volunteered yeah. Yeah. to to join the military and to pursue these different career fields. And so mm-hmm. um and and I think you said too, it's not you said this isn't mentioned enough by the media. Yeah. In fact, you know, right now during the the current crisis that's going on, you know, you're hearing coronavirus this, COVID-19 that doom and gloom you know millions of mm-hmm. people are going to die from this and and all these other negative stories and i've maybe heard a couple of mentions and it's just basically what information that's drawn from our president's news conferences is you've mm-hmm. got the two hospital ships that are based you know that are going off of the you know the coastlines of new york and california mm-hmm. but you don't hear enough of what the military does this this story about about the relief in Katrina and the tsunamis that happened, um, I, I've never heard a story like that before, and it just it really frustrates me that the media does not cover stuff like this. It, no. it's, yeah, it's, well, it's annoying, and it's not, a shame. Not, su- not surprised at all. Exactly. <laughs> and and here's the well, thing, I'm not guys. Surprised either. All of those commanders wrote after action reports. All of those after-action reports were later analyzed and looked at and gone over and so forth and said, what lessons can we learn from this in case we have to do this again? And yeah. mm-hmm. in, in, in Hurricane Katrina's uh, instance, Houston, a month I think it was a month and a half later, had the same um, hurricane of the same intensity go across the top of it, and it was like, Oh, we've seen this before. We know how to handle this. And they took all of Admiral Kilkenny's uh, lessons learned and applied it to Houston. And so mm-hmm. the spin-up time was shorter. And somewhere, all of those lessons learned are stored somewhere. And there's been many times, like when I was running air refueling for the invasion, I went back to the Gulf War air power surveys and I said, what can I learn from what we did in Desert Storm that's going to help me in the invasion? All right. One thing mm-hmm. I learned was four of the Gulf Coast countries became oil importers. They ran out of gas during Desert Storm. And so we had to figure out where we had tankers in UAE and Qatar and Bahrain, how we were going to keep those things refueled. And it's because we had that history and we had those lessons learned that we could go back to and go, okay, now that knowledge is going to apply to this situation and in this humanitarian operation i would go back and and i'm sure a lot of the military guys are doing that okay what did we learn from katrina what did we learn from houston what did we learn from bandayache you know how's it going to apply to helping us here okay because when you have 
all of those dead bodies from the tsunami, there's all kinds of diseases, and they had to fight that too. Malaria. Yeah. Isn't it interesting yeah. that a malaria drug is one of the things that combats this thing and has a very high success rate? A malaria drug. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, so yeah. you go back and you look at history. You know, they always say, you know, history repeats itself. And now you have people that are going back and looking at all this stuff going, hey, what can we learn from this and how can we apply it to what's happening right now? Yeah. I'm yeah, looking. And, and, I'm yeah, looking no, at the go, Johns go ahead, Hopkins University. Johns Hopkins University, and I'll send you guys a link to this, has a really cool interactive map that's been used on Fox News and a bunch of other places. And right now there's, as of this moment, 826,222 confirmed cases. The U.S. has the most right now of 174,000 cases. There's been 40,000 deaths. Italy has the highest. Um, believe it or not, I think New York is number nine with 932. But here's the thing you're not hearing about is 175,000 people have recovered from it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where have you heard exactly. that number? Where have you heard yeah, that number? Exactly. You don't. You, you, you don't you because don't. it doesn't keep people in fear by hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in 180 countries or provinces now, but 175 people. 175,737 have recovered from this. Yes, mm, the deaths yeah. are sad, okay? And yes. Utah Utah just lost its former uh speaker of the house, Bob Graff, mm -hmm. and but mm -hmm. he 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 had some underlying health issues too. Fortunately, a good friend of mine is married to his niece and and I talked to him yesterday. Uh he's also a Delta Airlines pilot. There's some really fascinating things going on there. Maybe we'll get to that. Here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, yeah, there's all of these things. It's it's impacting the way we live and the, impacting the things that we do. But you're right, guys. All three of you have said we're not hearing the good stories. The good stories about what the mercy and the comfort can do, what a large deck amphib could do, and 175,737 people have survived this, have gotten through mm -hmm. it, and that number yeah. I'm sure is going to climb particularly now that we've figured out that it looks like this uh, chloroquine, hydrochloroquine, and Zithromax uh, may be a silver bullet mm -hmm. for this. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yep. and, 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 and not, not only that, but most of the people that have survived this thing weren't so deathly ill where they needed investigational drugs mm -hmm. and they needed these things. The human body is actually learning how to fight it as well. Yes. And I think... Yeah, I think that that's probably not even brought up enough, you know. No, um, uh -uh. right. Well, and it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt as well that we're now coming into. Uh, you know, we're coming out of winter, coming into spring and summer, mm -hmm. which which helps as well. But and and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this. I mean, granted, this is the topic of the uh -huh. world at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but I do want to point out too, though, is some of these these quote unquote epicenter cities. Look at look at the living conditions of some of these yeah. cities. The homeless rates, the yeah. the proximity that people live near each other. I mean, we're talking, you know. I mean, look at how crowded you know Italy is. Look how crowded New York City mm -hmm. is. 
you know, uh, Nolan's is is now experiencing, you mm-hmm. know, some some big yeah. difficulties. But look at the the concentrations of populations there too, you know, even in California. So uh-huh. so there are certain factors that are going to contribute to yeah. the number of cases in certain areas, but but it's like you said, nobody is reporting on you know the humanitarian efforts that are going on the the progress that is being made to find yeah. you know something to help fight this for the mm-hmm. people that have got it um you know and very few people are expressing the fact or very few news outlets are 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 expressing the fact that so many people may have already had this and never even known yeah you know, it's you, just, yeah. And you brought up a great point, okay? Because last month, my wife and I got really sick. And I mean, we've been really healthy for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, she and I had a fever, a cough, mm-hmm. body aches, mm-hmm. okay, and fatigue. All right. What are the four things mm-hmm. that they say about this? All right. Right. And we're like, where in the you world did yeah. this come from? Bingo. Where did this come from? What what's going on here? You know, and and you're sick and miserable for about four days, okay? Mm-hmm, and right. the after effects last about two weeks. All right. And then it like disappeared. And you're like, God, what just happened there? What just yeah, went on? Right. It's like in early early February. What, yeah, and, and what's I'm interesting like going, about where that, did Mark, this come is, from? Yeah. Is you're not the first person I've heard mention that and in other words what's interesting is is there were some reports that came out like a week or two ago where they said you know this was probably in the united states a lot sooner than anyone anticipated which means Mm -hmm. those numbers reported cannot be accurate because if Mm -hmm. a large group of people have already had this and got over it there's no way to actually accurately report Mm -hmm the number yeah. of cases because they can only report what people are having the symptoms and then go get tested. People may have already exactly. gone through it, like you said, you know? And so that's why I personally um, try not to get too involved in the numbers because it's good to know. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when you have a, a doctor in the UK saying it's going to kill a half a million people, and then he comes back and says, well, actually maybe only 20,000. It's like, your numbers were yeah. just a little bit off, dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. And and I want to <laughs> I want to add something to that to what you said, Mark. So, um the same time frame, you know, uh early to mid February. Um so my uh my granddaughter, she got really sick, ran a really high fever for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, had the cough and the other symptoms. Yeah. My daughter caught it. My, my grandson caught it. Um, but then she was talking with her mom, my ex-wife. Well, guess what? They all had it like, like a week, a week and a half before. And on top of that, they had just gotten back from a cruise. See, uh, imagine yeah. that. So, yeah. Imagine you just that. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know, okay? And, right. And, and the and, doctor just told my daughter that, well, you know, this is just a virus. And anyway, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, that was a time period where we weren't fighting this like we are now. And so 
Right, who knows right. who it spread to? And there's no test to say, well, you had it. We need your plasma to help fight mm -hmm. it now. Yeah. Is there? Okay. Yeah. I no, can go no, in I and say, hey, I think I, yeah. I, I can go in and say, I think I had the symptoms back here, you know, and I may have had it, but they're not concerned with that right now. And mm -hmm. here's the other crazy thing is there are companies that are telling their people go in and get tested. And when they go in and get tested, they, the medical staff, okay, do you have any symptoms? Well, no, but my boss said to get tested. Get out of here. Okay. Mm -hmm, we yeah. don't need you here right, right now because we're fighting this now with people that have the <laughs> symptoms, have it and are really ill. But yet there are companies that are telling their people, Hey, you need to go get tested before you come back to work. Well, they're not going to mm -hmm. test him because he doesn't have any symptoms. He's felt yeah. fine through this whole thing. All right. So that's another factor in our economy that we've got to take into consideration is some of these companies are asking things that are not going to happen. The doctors are not going to look right. at my son because he has no symptoms. They're not going to deal with that. Right. They don't have time for it. They don't have no. resources yeah. for it. They don't have, they don't want to expend uh, medical energy on him. They're trying to find the solution and he's not part of the solution if he's not sick. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, right, right. um, uh, you know, who's, who knows what's, well, you we, know, who knows we, how we, long we, it's going to take to ramp back up, but we'll see. Yeah. 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 Hopefully. So everybody recovers and yeah, you know, yeah. listen, right. Tony, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, um, just in the interest of time, uh, we can, I mean, we can talk about this forever and we can probably yeah. circle back and revisit this, but, um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. that, that was some amazing information that you gave us, especially yeah. the insight with, you know, the, the, uh, role that the military can play mm -hmm. in a, in a, you know, a pandemic or a, a, mm -hmm. a disaster situation such as this. So, so yeah. switching yeah. gears back to the ramp check podcast, okay. um, and the fact <laughs> that, that you, um, that you were a knuckle dragging tanker pilot for so long. Um, yeah, well, I'm fascinated. <laughs> What's that? Hold on. I, what, I what I was going to say, what? what I was going to say, Tony, is I was going to say, uh -huh. let's get back to the nobody kicks ass without tanker gas. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> so since we're talking it's... numbers, why don't I give you some more numbers? Okay. Okay. That's let's do, go that's for it. <laughs> and the fact, and you're an expert, and you're an expert, and you are kind of an expert on the coronavirus thing because you did pass gas for over 20 years. Yes, I did. <laughs> so, um, let's talk about my airplane just real quick, okay? And sure. The yes. next time, the next time you hear somebody say, "Let's do a no-fly, no-drive zone over some country," I want you to remember these numbers. And your listeners to remember these numbers, okay? Because the politician yes. uh, has no clothes on. All right. When the, I just roll my eyes every time I hear this, <laughs> a KC-135R model on a combat mission in the Middle East takes off with 180,000 pounds of gas. All right, a little over 27,000 mm -hmm. gallons of gas. A typical American right. family uses about 1,010 gallons a year. So that means I'm taking off with more gas on one mission 
than you're going to use in your family vehicle in 27 years. Oh, wow. That's how much I'm using <laughs> yeah. on one mission, okay? And I'm landing, I'm, I'm getting back to the base with about 20, 25,000 pounds, okay? So I'm offloading it or burning it, all right? Mm-hmm. Uh, an F-15 uh, air-to-air, we call it a light gray, F-15C model, burns 8,000 mm-hmm. pounds an hour at tactical speeds or 2,000 pounds wow. a minute an afterburner. And wow. the first thing the pilot's going to do when he engages another airplane is he's going to drop more than likely the centerline tank because that's the G-limiting external tank on the airplane. He'll keep the wing tanks, but drop mm-hmm. the centerline tank. So they've lost the capability of carrying 4,000 extra pounds as soon as they go into combat, which exasperates the problem. All right? Yeah. Eight yeah. eight thousand mm-hmm. pounds an hour, two thousand pounds a minute, and afterburner, and that was a pretty good rule of thumb for the F fifteen C, the E models, the F fourteen Tomcat, um, and the F eighteen. Uh, that was a pretty good rule of thumb that we used. Okay, and one of the other titles that I have is I was second in command of the uh, the cadre that created the KC one thirty five weapons school. And for four years, we created and built the syllabus from scratch for a KC-135 weapons school. We had 482 academic hours, 18 five-hour flights, a three-hour simulator, and a graduate PhD-level paper that you had to accomplish in 19 weeks. That's what the weapons school uh, period is, okay? So it's intense. And these are the kinds of things we taught, all right? And our third class was going through on 9-11, and I got tagged to go over to the Middle East fairly quickly after that. During the mm-hmm. invasion of Iraq in 26 days, tankers transferred 417 million, 133,000 pounds of jet fuel to other receivers. Holy how cow. Do you wrap, wow. how, do you, how do you wrap your head around 417 million pounds? Here's how you do it. 417,133,000 pounds of gas will allow a Ford F-150 truck to make 2,685 round trips to the moon or seven <laughs> round trips to the sun or seven round trips to the sun on that amount of gas. Okay. Wow. That puts it and in perspective. It does, doesn't it? Okay. And I mentioned yeah. to you that I went back and looked at history when we were creating the air refueling plan for the invasion in 2003. And that's when I learned that United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Bahrain Uh became oil importers because of the amount of fuel that the United States Air Force was using. And what we had to do in the United Arab Emirates, because we were using Al-Dafra, and Aldafra was using more jet fuel in a single day than the United Arab Emirates was capable of producing in a day. So <laughs> we had crazy. to bring in, we brought in one of those very large, extra wide super tankers filled with jet fuel and they pumped it straight to the base because we had, um, 
20 KC-10s, they were taking off with 320,000-pound fuel loads times Jeez. 38. Okay? Wow. I think, wow. That's, I, think that's, I think that's around 1. I have to do the math again. I think it's around 1.2 million pounds just to fill the KC-10s on a daily basis. I think the most we ever got, we, I think they flew 40 missions a day from those 20 KC-10s uh, once we got the crew level back up. So um, wow. your listeners need to understand, um, first of all, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore's footprint, they're amateurs compared to mine. Their <laughs> eco footprints, they're amateurs compared to mine. All right. Uh, and that's just the fuel is just the nature of, of campaigns. All right. And there's a, a famous general who coined this phrase smart men study tactics, smart men and women study tactics, brilliant men and women study logistics. And tankers oh, is yeah. the logistics tale. Definitely. Okay. Tankers is the logistics tale because nobody yeah. has the fleet of tankers we have, the large fleet we have, and and getting larger uh with the KC forty six, hopefully they'll work all the mm -hmm. bugs out of that. They just they just found another problem, another category one problem with a fuel oh, in one of the tanks. I know. I uh, just read just about that about. too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and it's a great airplane, and I'm sure they're, they'll get it fixed. It'll just take time, and it'll take a lot of money. But now that it, the yeah. New Hampshire Guard Unit has it, has them, there's guys in that Guard Unit, I'm sure, that are going through the airplane and figuring out how can we fix this thing to make this thing mission capable. Leave it to a Guard yeah. Unit, you know, to figure out the to figure out the issues, <laughs> you know. Right, but, and hopefully, yeah. hopefully that solution. Hopefully that solution doesn't involve chewing gum and duct tape. No, <laughs> it, 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 it won't. But it'll be very innovative, and it'll be something that you'll go, "Crap! Why didn't we think of that?" You know? Yeah, uh, that's yeah. just the, that's just the way it is. Um, right. The KC forty no, six is going to be a great. Yeah, the KC forty six is going to be a good airplane once they get all the bugs figured, you know, fixed and figured yeah. out. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I recently. Uh, was contacted by a gentleman who's on the test team at Boeing, and he's given me mm -hmm. some some interesting information about what they're trying to do to fix the uh, the remote vision system for the boom, which has been a continuing mm -hmm. problem, the fuel leaks, mm -hmm. um, and and the cargo uh, tie down issues that they're having, uh, and mm -hmm. then once they get those fixed, you know that airplane will be great a great airplane, but. KC forty the KC one thirty five man continues soldiering on you know and and there's airplanes out there still as flying as I am, still flying right you know? well I, yeah I mean uh, in, in the KC one thirty five it's like it's like the proportions of it are perfect it looks like what an airplane should look like uh, I oh, mean yeah. it's it it, yeah. it it is it's sexy it just looks good and and it's like the like the original you know jet transport design i mean it's they, yeah. boeing nailed that thing from the get-go yeah that's what i love and, about and, the 135 and and well. let me let you guys in on a little secret the kc-135 lost the 1954 competition did you know that no i did not they, i did not it mm -hmm. came it came in third lockheed what? had really to Lock what yes it, yeah. it did 
It did. Okay. Wow. Bill Allen was an amazing visionary CEO of Boeing at this time period. Okay. And mm -hmm. Lockheed had an airplane called an L-193. It looks a lot like the Vickers VC-10 with four engines uh, back under the okay. tail and everything. Okay. Yeah, back under the that tail. One, okay. Yeah. That won the competition. Okay. And um, Douglas actually put the DC-8 in the competition. But mm. Bill Allen and Boeing got the final contract because Bill Allen knew in the early 50s when they were working on the B-52 that it was going to have to have a jet refueling tanker. The KC-97 was woefully inadequate for jet air refueling, okay? Mm -hmm. And there's right. all these funny stories about the B-47 would have to come down from 32,000 feet to 18,000 feet refuel behind the propeller driven airplane and they'd have to do what's called a toboggan where they're where they're descending at 300 feet a minute just so that the b-47 can stay on the boom because it's going so slow yeah, and well, the kc-97 burning almost as much fuel as it was taken on board being at that low altitude exactly so well not only <laughs> well, that and, and to get back to altitude exactly <laughs> that was the real problem is they were burning a lot of this fuel to get back up to altitude, okay? And mm -hmm. the KC-97, remember, had reciprocating engines, so it can't burn the same fuel. They actually had to carry the jet fuel in separate tanks in the fuselage. Yeah. yeah. All right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But it was still, you know, a fairly decent tanker, and Bill Allen realized that he was going to have to have a jet-powered tanker. And he was... He took... And, and this is very, uh, this isn't very intuitive, but while the Korean War was going on, they were getting taxed like crazy because of all of the projects that they had that were contributing to the Korean War. And so mm -hmm. he took $16 million, and back then in the 50s, that's a lot of money, and mm -hmm. put it into R&D to the jet tanker. And one of the original drawings, and I found this out during my research of my book, they had engine pods like the B-52 with two engines side by side. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and then went to the four engines, you know, spread across the wings because they were worried, you know, if one engine went out, it would take the other one with it. So they put them in separate pods. Yeah. And that was the final yeah. version of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. He went ahead and built the uh you know the now famous uh 707 prototype the, the 380 yeah the you know the the dash the dash 80 the dash 80 exactly yeah, yeah. okay yeah it's and, at the smithsonian i've seen it yes okay <laughs> yep. and what a lot of people don't know is that the uh the 357 dash 80 he used 357 kind of to um hide the fact that they were making a jet because 357 was the model number for the KC-97. And they named it Dash 80 <laughs> so that all the people in Boeing would know that it was the jet-powered one. And they oh, walled yeah. off a section, they walled off a section of the Boeing Renton plant and created the Dash 80 like you see up there at the uh, museum. Okay? Famous, famous airplane. That yes. airplane was flying and was already doing things two years before 
the other refueling tanker was supposed to be on board. So Curtis oh, wow. LeMay bought Curtis LeMay bought twenty nine of them, just kind of as an interim to the L one ninety three. Lockheed couldn't get the L one ninety three off paper, so Curtis LeMay ordered two hundred, I think two hundred and fifty more. All right, and then finally said, "Wait a minute, I'm not going to have two tankers in my fleet. I'm going to go with this one." But the KC-135, like the KC-46, lost its initial competition to another that's, tanker. That's, wow. that's that's true. Yeah, the the original competition. I remember following it well. It, it lost to uh, Airbus in their A330 yeah, version of their tanker. Yeah, they're, they're exactly. Right. Yep, exactly. Right. But because Bill Allen had the foresight to say, wait a minute, we're going to need a jet-powered tanker to refuel the B-52. And you'll notice that the wing sweep is exactly the same, okay? 35 degrees. Mm -hmm. And here's another interesting story mm -hmm. about that. A couple of Boeing engineers were on the um, German exploitation team and got to talk to a lot of the German engineers, and they told them all of our wind tunnel tests show that the best design for an airfoil is a 35-degree sweep. That's where hmm. that came from. Mm, right. Interesting. And then, I always and thought then, maybe it came from when Tex Johnson barrel-rolled the Dash 80 for everybody. <laughs> no, uh, and, and uh, that's a funny story in of itself, and I'll tell you about that here in just a second. But <laughs> yeah. all the German engineers had told them that the best uh, airfoil for a jet-powered aircraft was 35 degrees. Now, that allowed the 707 to go a little bit faster. I think it's about 25 knots faster than the DC-8, which had a 30-degree swept thing, because their mm. engineers were not part of that exploitation team that went over there and got to see all of the wind tunnel testing that the Germans had done, right? Mm -hmm. I found this in a book about the creation of the 707 that was really, really fascinating reading, all right? So mm -hmm. there was 732 was the initial buy of uh, the KC-135s, and they were rolling off the assembly line at about $2.7 million per copy back in the 50s, okay? Oh, and yeah. 55... 55 through 63 is when they were building them. And I think there's 400, 442 left in the fleet now out of the original 732. Uh, but, you know, they had the old A model engines, the water burning engines. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that engine, the J57 engine, was the Collier Trophy winner for the most uh, outstanding um innovative technology of its time period. That engine was really, really an incredible engine back then, you know, but it's, it, it's, oh my gosh. Uh, when we were heavy in the A model, we were burning about 13,000 pounds an hour. When we were heavy in the R model, we were burning around 10, you know, and that 3,000 pounds oh, an wow. hour difference was, was huge. Okay. The there R model is. engines allowed oh. the KC-135 to burn 40% less gas. <laughs> But the big deal was it allowed us to get off of 8,000-foot runways, which Europe, had, oh. Europe has 85, 9,000-foot runways at all the, all the European uh, fighter bases. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it allowed us to take off <clears throat> with 
you know, 180,000 pounds and about 5,000 feet. So, uh, I, that was, that, the I remember the engine, huge, uh-huh. huge change to the, to the, to the tanker. Okay. I and, remember departing off of one of those runways in Germany in a C5 once. That was a pretty interesting experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a, a little I, white knuckle time, huh? Uh, yes. <laughs> and that was just as being a passenger. Yeah. Uh, white, white knuckle, pucker factor, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah. Those. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This and, was and a little uh, tornado understand. base in Germany. <laughs> and you're not understanding why the, the pilot crew doesn't have a sense of urgency of going off the end of the runway, do you? You're like, <laughs> right. We do, this, we, we do this all the time. It scares us when we get over it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, Mark, but uh, I was uh, I was training to be a crew chief on the KC-135 with the Utah Air National Guard right before I got uh-huh. out. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I have a soft spot for that airplane as well. Yeah. And, and the R model engines were a huge difference, but here's another thing, a historical point that I bet you don't know. That engine was within two weeks of being canceled because nobody wanted it. Really? The CFM 50, the CFM 56 engine required, uh, President Nixon's signature on the bottom line. Uh, and was within two weeks of being canceled, um, because nobody wanted that engine. When GE and, uh, the French company Snecma got together to put that engine together, uh, the core of the engine was the same core that was going in the B1. So it was classified. Oh, and interesting. The first round, the State Department, uh, disapproved um, them using the core for that engine, the B1 engine, in the CFM-56. And when mm-hmm. Nixon met with President Pompidou of France, that was one of the things he brought up. He goes, he goes, dude, I know this will work, and I know it's classified, but we got to figure this out. And so he went back to Henry Kissinger and said, hey, he brought this up. You know, what can we do about this? And, of course, Strategic Air Command was saying no. It's going on the B-1. The core of the engine is classified. So what they came up with was a workaround where the core of the engine would be built in the United States, and Americans would mate that to the fan section, either in France or in the United States, so that none of the classified, quote-unquote, portion of the core of the engine would be uh, compromised. But they went ahead Mm. and made the engine anyway. And the French tankers were the first ones to get the R-model engines. But they, in fact, did put the R-model engines, the CFM-56s, on a Boeing 707 to test it to see what it would do. So they had really good background figures on what the KC-135 performance was going to be based on testing those engines on a 707 airframe. And it was spectacular. Interesting. Spectacular. Oh, wow. Okay. So, well, who, who finally, would have known the the one thirty five and the B one were related that way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a great book called The Power to Fly, and that story is in the, one of the chapters. Uh, this guy was an engineer for GE, and he tells the whole story. 
about they're trying to create a two a twenty thousand pound thrust engine, and they realize the fan section that Snecma makes is superb, but the core section that they that GE makes is superb, and they're trying to mate those two into a new engine. And now, mm. I mean, the CFF 56 is on everything, you know? There's no yeah, 737 really out there that doesn't have it on it, okay? Right, and, right. But, but yeah, Good they point. were within two weeks of shutting that whole program down when the French tankers finally said, the French said, well, we got to pony up, and, and they put them on theirs. And then, right. um, as you know, United and Delta had DC-8s, and they re-engined their airplanes uh, the DC-8s right. with the CFM-56s, okay? So they got a lot of good stuff from that. And then finally the Air Force said, you know what? We see the the wisdom in this and went ahead and said, you know, we're going to re-engine 300 of uh, our KC-135s with the engine. And it yeah. was a game changer. It was a game changer. Did- it was like putting the Merlin in the Mustang. <laughs> yeah. So you know? why, right. why, Mark, why, why didn't they put a thrust reverser on that? And you know what? You know, that's a great question. What, what is the story behind that? That's a great question. And I asked that question. I had a GE uh, CFM 56 guy on uh, one of my flights when I was in Guam mm-hmm. and he was making a tour through the Pacific. And I got to ask him, I said, okay, dude, two things. Why <laughs> in the world? Is why in the world did you replumb the engine, and why in the world did you not put thrust reversers on this thing? And it was because of Strategic Air Command. Really? The cost the cost of the engines at that time was about seven hundred and seventy five thousand per engine. Strategic mm-hmm. Air Command made them move the gearbox from underneath the engine to the side of the engine, so they had to replumb the engine. And took the mm-hmm. thrust reversers off, which increased the cost of the engines to one point two million dollars. Okay, Phew, not doesn't pre- make any sense. I know, not uh, not a real shiny moment for Strategic Air Command. Okay, because <laughs> thrust reverse. I mean, the E models all had thrust reverse on them, and and there was a problems, but they were worried that there would be a pod scrape that would that would destroy the. Uh, the accessory drive case if it was left on the bottom. So that's why they moved it to the side. Uh, and they took thrust yeah. reversers off and put five rotor brakes on the tanker uh, to um, compensate for the loss of the thrust reversers. And uh-huh. it's not a it's not an even comparison, believe me, okay? Uh, not even close. <laughs> yeah. All right. But they were worried yeah. about the the thrust reverser maintenance and 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 People inadvertently using them in flight and stuff like that, you know. And of course, all the yeah, pilots, the yeah. K135 pilots, are going like, "Really, kids? Really, really? You know, <laughs> leave the engine the way it is." But uh, uh, strategic air command uh, powers that be and decision makers said, "No, this is what we're going to do." So they actually so it wasn't increased necessarily the cost of the on by doing money it. because it was no, more, uh-uh. yeah, yeah, wow. because the engines ended up costing more, but. By the time that the fleet had the R model engines in it, they had more than paid for themselves in gas and yeah. gas sales. Yeah. Okay, because we could offload forty percent more gas. We could go into shorter runways. We could fly farther. And a matter of fact, on a longer mission, the KC one hundred and thirty five can offload more gas than a KC ten because the KC ten is burning it at twenty thousand pounds an hour 
That's their rule of thumb, uh-huh. 20,000 pounds an hour in the KC-10. Because it's got those big three three big engines, and it's a big airplane, okay? So yeah, that's yeah. why that happened. That's why that particular, that's the story behind that. And like I said, I had a GE engineer, and I asked that question. And he said, he said, hey, Strategic Air Command gave us the requirements that we had to move them, and, and we did. And he says, oh, increase wow. the cost of the airplane. Interesting. But, but, he's, yeah. but he said in the conversation, too, he says, Mark, it's going to more than pay for itself in the long run. Believe me, you guys are going to save so much money in gas. It's going to be ridiculous. Yeah. You know, because wow. um, we had uh, a guy, <laughs> Bobby Kilgore. He's the commander of the New York Guard Unit up there at Niagara. He flew nonstop from Kadena to McGuire in New Jersey, 17 and a half hours Oof. in the air. And gas was not the issue. Oil consumption was the issue. He would land with plenty oh, of gas. Wow. He took off. He took off with one hundred ninety-five thousand pounds. I mean, it was a fully loaded, you know, airplane, as it, if it was going yeah. out on a on a nuclear mission. We loaded it with a <laughs> nuclear mission type of fuel load, but uh, the oil consumption mm-hmm. over the seventeen hours was actually the the limiting factor. And he landed fine. He, oh. he landed with like twenty-five thousand pounds. You know, I mean, but you know, seventeen and a half hours in the air is kind of a long time. Because I've only wow. got a twelve-hour butt. All right. Yeah. I got to land after twelve hours. I got a twelve-hour butt. You know. <laughs> That's funny. My log well, is you 15. know, fifteen point one. So, so Jeez. speaking of, yeah. you know, hours and loadouts for whatever mission. Um, why uh-huh. don't unless Ryan and Tony has something else to ask you about what we were just talking about? Um, let let's kind of delve into your book and. I want you sure. to pick out probably the most intriguing story that people will find in your book that that really explains what you are all about and what and how vital the KC-135 mission is to to our warfighters. Because you know we, we we recorded a podcast um, recently with with Fast. I don't know if you you caught it yet, but Fast is a good friend of ours. Yeah, that was based at Hill Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and F-16s. And yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, he deployed uh, flying the F-16s uh, from Hill Air Force Base to Afghanistan, and and one common denominator in his stories in combat is they always had to go to the tanker, always. Yes, because if the tankers weren't there, and so they wouldn't be able to fulfill their missions like they were, which would have mm-hmm. resulted in more, you know. Uh, deaths on the ground you know more mm-hmm. casualties and so yeah it, it's people just really need to realize it you know how vital these tankers are but is there a specific story in your book or a specific mission that really mm-hmm. breaks that Stands down out. for the listener okay um and and this one just popped in my head because i just talked to this guy um, okay Operation Anaconda in March of 2002 went horribly wrong quickly, okay? Hmm. All of you have heard, probably have read the story about the Battle of Roberts Ridge, Tacker Gar, okay? And the SEAL team, Mako 30, that was dropped in there at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and the helicopter got Hmm. shot up, and a Navy SEAL fell Mm -hmm. off the back of the helicopter right in the middle of about 75 hardcore Al-Qaeda guys. 
Yeah, uh, that was a Chinook, right? They they were yeah, flying it was. A Chinook, a hundred, right? Yeah, yeah, from 160th SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation go. Regiment. And and believe mm-hmm. me, these guys are the creme de la creme of helicopter pilots in the world. All right? I mean, these mm-hmm. guys are, are just phenomenal. They were flying the stealth helicopters, the stealth Blackhawks that landed in Abbottabad compound where Bin Laden mm-hmm. was. It's the same guys. Mm-hmm. They're the guys that... uh you know, do all of the special operations and move the SEAL teams, the Delta Force, uh, other teams that we don't talk about and so forth, move them around. I mean, they are the premier helicopter guys in the world, bar none. All right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but our intelligence, uh, was bad because of the way we planned that particular operation. And, uh, there was a lot of holes in the plan. And that was, the Air Force's uh, being able to help with that because they gave us the the Army gave us their plan five days before it was supposed to kick off, which mm-hmm. is stupid. We should have had drones and everything flying over the area, establishing patterns of life. If we'd have had that kind of even two weeks of notice, we would have had drones flying over Takagar. We would have known that there's 75 to 100 guys up there. This wouldn't have happened. But because of bad weather and a bunch of other things, uh, they had a blizzard the night before on top of this mountain. There was fresh snow that was up to the guy's knees and thighs, uh, all these kinds of things. And that was the first thing that 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 Chinook pilot saw was there were fresh tracks in the snow. And that's when he first went, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And it was moments after that that he got tagged. Okay. And Roberts falls off the back. Okay. So... I recently talked to Chris Russell. Chris Russell was the Wizzo in the back of one of the F-15Es, call sign Twister 5-2. We did a graphic for him for Christmas. We did his airplane that he was flying in this battle. And they had come down in the middle of the night and already been flying for a couple hours when they were told to contact uh, Mako 3-0 on the ground. And they had no idea who it was, Okay. They'd already refueled mm-hmm. three times. They'd already dropped a bunch of bombs on different things and so forth. Uh, Twister 5-1 was the lead. Twister 5-2 was uh, Chris Russell and uh, his uh, pilot, uh, his call sign was Panzer. Rykoff was his pilot. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, they're called to come and and help with this rescue, but they don't know it. They don't have any idea that there's a rescue going on. And oh, by the way, at that time period in 2001, there was no close air support doctrine in any of their manuals. None of them had shot a gun at a ground target because that was not in their doctrine. None of them had dropped mm. bombs in the close air support role working with uh, ground uh, forward air controllers, JTACs, all those kinds of things. And now they're thrust into this. All right. Fortunately, Jeez. the pilot in Twister 5-1 had been a former A-10 guy and knew how to do oh, this. Okay. okay, All right. His name is Chris Short. Perfect. He's a Brigadier General now. Okay. He's a Brigadier General now. And his backseater, uh, Chris's backseater, was a guy, a lieutenant colonel by the name of Fairchild, call sign Meat. So you got Junior and Meat in one airplane and Panzer and Spliff <laughs> in the other. Okay. <laughs> and they're like, you know, what are we doing here? Who are we, who are we talking to here? Who's Mako 30? 
You know, make this is Mako three zero. We need help right now. We need help right now. And see, they've already captured. Um, they've already captured Neil Roberts. They've already executed him. And Britt Slavinsky, yeah. the SEAL guy, is on the top of the mountain trying to recover him and his body. Still doesn't know what's going on. And now they're in a firefight that uh, John Chapman eventually wins the Medal of Honor in too. So does Slavinsky. <clears throat> and they're they're. They're having this intense fight. They're shooting the gun at ground targets for the very first time. And Chris Russell sent me his video from his targeting pod and his HUD. And you can see the helicopter crashed on the mountain in the video. All right? Oh, wow. wow. And they're coming in and they're strafing these things, but they're having to come off for gas because these are very intense missions and they're very mm -hmm. gas cons uh they consume a lot of gas doing these kinds of things, mm -hmm. all right? Well, I had put and created three air refueling areas around the Shaikut Valley. And I, since we have air superiority, we own the air, I put them just a few miles, less than 20 miles south of the valley at 21,000 to 28,000 feet. Two of them to the south, one of them to the north. I named them Rush, O'Reilly, and Hannity. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Rush, O'Reilly, and Hannity. All right. Bravo. And so, <laughs> but here's the problem. They're having to recycle off of the tanker so that one of them can stay overhead at all times. And the reason I mm -hmm. put them so close was so... These guys only had to go five minutes to get gas. Five minutes instead mm. of 30 minutes, mm -hmm. okay? And they continued to cycle on and off and ended up dropping all nine of their uh, GBU-12 500-pound laser guided bombs, shot all 510 rounds out of their gun. They went home Winchester, no ammo on the airplanes whatsoever. And then two oh, F-16s wow. came in behind them. Two F-16s came in behind them and dropped laser-guided bombs, shot their guns, all right? And uh, let's see, the lead pilot was call sign Divot. His name is uh, Barkley. And what was the other guy's name? Anyway, they're Class 7-1 and Class 7-2. So they come in, and they're now on scene, but they've shot the gun at ground targets. They've dropped GBU-12s working with, with uh, close air support guys on the ground and so forth. So... But they're, again, cycling on and off the tanker every five minutes throughout this 17-hour fight. So the yeah. gas is closed. They're only having to drive five minutes to get the gas, fill up, go back in, fight again, you know, and they're cycling off the tanker and so forth. Because, as you said earlier, nobody kicks ass without tanker <laughs> gas. So all these airplanes. Hell yes. And because we had air superiority, and we didn't have to worry about air threats, we were able to put the air refueling areas right next to the target area and have guys cycle mm -hmm. on, guys and gals cycle on and off and so forth and help rescue this team and cover this team. Yeah. And I found a briefing that has the after-action photos of the top of the mountain, okay? One of the things mm -hmm. the helicopter guy said, the first helicopter guy said, he said, wait a minute, something's not right here. He saw two goat carcasses in the trees and a donkey tied to the same tree. And he's like going, 
wait a minute, there's people living up here. And his mind is trying to process all of this when he gets hit by RPGs, a 50 caliber gun called a Dishka gun, small arms fire. Roberts falls off the back because the hydraulics fluid is pouring out everywhere and it's hot. He falls from about 10 feet in there, but the pilot guns the helicopter and gets off, lands in the valley, and then he's told by the SEAL team in the back, we left the guy up there. Oh, and now they go geez. get on another helicopter and Slavinsky and his team go back up there knowing that they're going to get tagged hard. <clears throat> and Slavinsky even <clears throat> said while he was flying up there, he was saying goodbye to his two daughters because he didn't think he was going to live through it. But because oh. we were able Oof. to provide provide gas close to the target area, the F-15Es, the the F-16s, and then it was eventually F-14s and F-18s that were also called into this, were able to provide top cover for this rescue and keep cover over the top of them through that whole 17-hour time period. Because there was a counterattack wow. later from behind them about 10 o'clock uh -huh. where, <clears throat> where uh, Jason Cunningham is a uh, uh, pararescue guy, and he gets shot, and he bleeds out on top of the mountain. But the F-18s come mm -hmm. in and drop bombs on them, and it was because they didn't have to go that far for gas. They, they only had to go right. five minutes for gas, and they could cycle off and keep cover over the top of them, keep bullets on top, you know, warheads on foreheads. That's the important thing, bullets on foreheads, <laughs> because the gas was close, the tankers were there, and uh, eventually one of the KC-10s did, in fact, move north so that it was almost right over the top of the Shaikut Valley. And it could refuel both boom and drogue airplanes. It could refuel the F-18s and the and the Tomcats and mm -hmm. the uh, F-16s and the and the uh, Strike Eagles. And it only takes two minutes mm -hmm. to go from drogue to boom back to drogue again. It's just it's a two minute checklist oh, okay. that doesn't take them very long. Wow! Uh, and if they have the wingtip pods, uh, they call them warp pods, wingtip air refueling pods that have the baskets in it, then they don't even have to deal with the center line. They can just refuel. They can they can put the baskets out, leave them out, put the boom down, and then anybody can plug into uh, the KC-10. We call the KC-10 Big Sexy. So uh, <laughs> anybody anybody can plug into Big Sexy anytime because it has the capability of not only being uh, a drogue uh, tanker, a boom tanker, but it's also air refuelable. And that's the really important thing. That the yeah, KC-135s right. did not have. You could fill the gas station mm -hmm. back up. <clears throat> so that particular day, we had a KC-10 that flew a 15.1 mission, yeah. and they were helping cover. Oh. They were helping cover the Battle of Roberts Ridge. And when I look back at all the missions I've flown, and I've flown a lot of missions. First night of Desert Storm, refueling the Wild Weasels into Baghdad, Coors, Lone Star, mm -hmm. Michelob. They're all named after beer. Uh, the Psyop <laughs> mission that we did. Um, all these different things. Uh, the one that I'm most proud of was being the lead planner in setting up the Anaconda air refueling system, naming them Rush, O'Reilly, and Hannity, having them right over the top of the area <laughs> that, that didn't take that long for guys to, to get gas. And we actually had <laughs> the guys hold on the tankers. We had the guys hold yeah. on the tankers, okay, so that the only thing they had to worry about was how many bombs do I have? How many bullets do I have? They they would never run out of gas because the gas would be right there wow. within within five to ten minutes of them. All right, 
That's awesome. I think that's a that's a really that's a really cool story. It's it's a it's a terrible story. We lost a lot of guys during that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there was a there was a the second helicopter brings Slavinsky back up there. They are in a firefight of their life. John Chapman gets uh, gets shot, uh, revives later, shoots some more, and he is trying to shoot and and neutralize uh, the threat on top of the hill in this one bunker. When the third helicopter comes in, it gets tagged hard, never even leaves the mountain. Uh, we actually dropped bombs on mm. it and blew it all up. And three mm. rangers never make it off the back of the ramp. They're instantly killed as the oh. ramp comes down, and they're Jeez. leaving. Okay? And all of this is on video. We're watching it in real time when it was happening. I mean, it was the firefight of our lives. Terrible. All right? Wow. I, Terrible. I, I think a lot of that footage is available on some YouTube yeah, it videos. Is. It is. That, and it's it's intense. I I've it seen is. that. And uh God, that that poor soldier up there all by himself, everybody thought mm-hmm. that he was dead before we could go yeah. back to try to get him and he just kept yeah. fighting and fighting and yeah. amazing. And he was so yeah. severely wounded during yeah. that whole firefight. He had like yep. nine holes wow. in him, and he took a round to the chest mm. as the third helicopter was landing. And so he's yeah, pumping no. out his last rounds and everything when he takes a round <clears> to <throat> the chest from that second bunker. But the helicopter, mm. it's called Razor 3, is actually getting shot at from three different directions. And in that video, if you remember seeing it, you remember seeing parts of the helicopter flying through the air as they got hit in that video, remember? Uh-huh. And, yeah, oh, and, yeah. And yeah, then and the blades, the blades are still rolling and everything. But as you watch the ramp in the back, you'll see three guys drop almost immediately. And that's the three guys that got hit and killed just as they were getting mm-hmm. off the ramp. And some of those guys are severely wounded. And one of those guys is, uh, um, uh, a JTAC. And he's the guy that sets up. He's slick zero one. He's the guy that's calling in the F-15Es and the, and the, the F-16s and everything. His name is Gabe Brown. <clears throat> He's a special tactics guy down at Hurlburt. He's now an officer. Um, but in the video that uh, Spliff mm. Russell sent me, you can hear him saying, you know, you know, good bullets, good bullets, keep them coming, keep them coming. You know, and he's telling them, you know, fly, mm-hmm. you know, your heading is 220, cleared in hot. You know, danger close, danger close. Jeez. And he gives his initials, Golf oh. Bravo, Golf Bravo. He's because he's saying mm-hmm. golf bravo, golf bravo. I'm taking responsibility for where you are laying your bullets down. Little does he yeah, realize mm-hmm. those guys haven't shot bullets at a ground target. All right, and they're only <laughs> wow. 75 meters away. They're only 75 meters away, and you can hear in the audio, you know, you know, come in hot, come in hot. You know, you're cleared hot. Golf bravo, golf bravo. You know, danger close. Golf bravo, golf bravo. And he's giving his initials. Because he's saying, I am taking responsibility for you guys putting bullets down close to us. That's, mm, wow. that's real courage. That's, that's real intense. stamina. That's, that's, that's jungle coconut cojones. If, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. you know? Uh, so, yeah. Well, um, and it's like you said as well. I mean, you know, the, the role that the tankers played. I don't, I don't want to say in the success or the overall success, but I mean, you just think, you know, everybody could have been lost if these aircraft yeah. weren't able to stay on station and keep dropping and, and shooting. So exactly. It's, exactly. Wow. And, 
and and here's the other crazy thing, okay? Twister 5.1 and 5.2 came from Al Jaber in Kuwait. They flew three hours down to, to Afghanistan, spent three and a half hours over the target area, and then flew three hours back. They were in the they were wow. in the seats for 10.1 wow. is what Chris told me. 10.1 in a strike eagle. And he told me it was the most frustrating mission he'd ever flown because they got called off of the target <laughs> twice. They said, a B-52 is coming in, going to drop bombs. You know, you got to clear off. And he's like, he's listening to the guys on the ground screaming in the radio. And then they get pulled off again because a predator is going to come in. And a predator does, in fact, fire a hellfire into one of the bunkers, okay, and kind of neutralizes mm -hmm. that threat a little bit, okay. But he kept getting called off and called off. They go to the tanker and <laughs> come in and are getting all set up and get <laughs> called off. And, and finally, they're ordered to go home. They're ordered, Twister 5-1 and 5-2, you will RTB now. And they're like, wait a minute, we're not done here yet. But again, Clash 7-1 and 7-2 show up. And then um, the F-18s show up. I can't remember their call signs. It was like fingers or something like that. They show up and they're dropping bombs and everything. But he says, all the way home, we have no idea if we're successful. We, we're mm -hmm. still hearing this guy screaming on the radio for help on the ground. And we're told, go home. And, and that's the last thing you want to do because we're not going to leave anybody behind. But they're told, yeah. go home, right. leave these guys behind. And he just said, Chris said, it was one of the most frustrating experiences of his of his flying career. He is now I would imagine the commander. That would be traumatic. Yeah, he is now the commander of the Air Operations Center at Osan, Korea. For the uh, if there was everything anything happened in Korea, he's the guy that's in charge. He's the daddy rabbit for the Air Operations Center at Osan, Korea. And uh, oh, we talked wow. for about an hour and a nice. half, and then we talked for about an hour and a half, and and. And here's what's cool, guys, is, is like you guys, you get to talk to these people that have all these crazy experiences like this. All of these, mm -hmm. all of this incredible history, Air Force history, Navy history, Marine Corps history, history in the, F, in the F-35, the KC-135. You know, I, I envy your jobs, you know, getting to talk to these kinds of people. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really something. So It's pretty fun. And we, and we certainly appreciate you taking time to talk with us about this i mean i mean hell mark this could be a six-hour podcast uh, but we're gonna have to uh we're gonna have to do a few of these with you because yeah. what we've heard yeah, so I'll... far is just amazing but you you said that this um this particular mission that you were talking about this is in your uh -huh. book correct yeah it is so it's in uh it's in um, the operation anaconda section i think it's uh in the okay. chapter called no plan survives that's well. I just I just um, <sighs> bought the book um, on uh, uh, through Apple, and I know it's available uh -huh. through through Audible and uh, some other Amazon. But um, Barnes and Noble has them. Yes, you know. So there you go. Perfect. Anyway, and yeah, I mean, I I downloaded the audio version because I spent a lot of time in my car, but I uh -huh. want to get the hardback version too, so I can so I can see the pictures, but. Um, so then we have to get together I, so I, I haven't can had sign a chance. Oh, oh we got to get together so I can sign We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Yeah, sure. we yeah. When we're allowed that. out of our houses, so, when they let us out of the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll just, uh, right 
we'll just hold it out six feet away for you to, to oh, sign. That's fine. So. <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah. But uh, but we're all gloved I, and masked up. Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> who did the forward, who who yeah. did the forward on this book, um, and uh, narrated a great, uh, you know, on the audio portion. Um, yeah. He mentioned. He mentioned this this uh, folded American flag showing up on his doorstep, and <laughs> yeah. it sounds like a real fascinating story. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, sure. we, we're yeah, obviously going to talk I'm, about a million different things, but uh, I'm yeah. glad really love to, to hear about that. Yeah, I'm glad Tony you brought that up because I was going to do the same thing, and and when I listen, because I have I have the audiobook version of of, of the book as well, and. And when you hear Rush Limbaugh talk about this, and he spends a good seven plus minutes, yeah, yeah. you know, discussing right. this experience, and and mm-hmm. it it almost got me a little emotional just because of how patriotic, and and just how proud Rush w- was speaking about receiving this, and how he was even thought of, and 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 I it, didn't even it, know that this was a it, tradition. It, it, yeah, I mean it, yeah, it. It blew yeah. me away. So I'm glad to. Yeah, I definitely want to hear this as well. So, and I uh, think um, be, before you get started in that, Mark, I just yeah. want to. Um, I think maybe after this, uh-huh. um, uh, this might be you know where we'll end the podcast. We obviously want to want to hear about a couple of your uh-huh. other endeavors too, like the graphic design. Sure. But we would love yeah. to have you on again so we can hear some more sure. fascinating stories because I mean sure. you've got a million of them. So yeah, I, I do. Okay, we're gonna and we're all right, gonna hold so here's you the to story that. about Rush. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, I want I want you guys to know that I did a podcast with Mike Young, who does air crew interview in England. And I was walking okay. around I was walking around uh the Hill Aerospace Museum and talking to him, and we went for five hours. So I can do a five hour podcast. I already know. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, I'll take as much time as you guys will let me. All right. So there here's the story of Rush. Here's the story of Rush. It. Okay. First of all, I want you guys to know I didn't know he did that. He never even told oh, you me didn't. that he did. No. No. Really? And when the audio really when I, I when I downloaded the audio book, I'm thinking, Danny Campbell is the guy who reads the book and he's what's called an earphones award winner. That's like the uh, Academy Awards for the audiobook uh community, okay? So Danny Campbell okay, okay. Who, who read my book uh, and 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 did a great job. A great job considering he's not a military guy, okay? Yeah, he does. Um, he does a does, good job. He does a really good job, okay? But I didn't know that Rush read his own forward. I didn't know that, and he didn't tell me that, and uh, until I listened to it, I'm like, "Wait a minute, that's Rush's voice." And I wrote to him, yeah, I go, an "Awesome surprise! You didn't tell me you did this." And he goes, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> I says, "I wanted it to be a surprise. I wanted it to be a surprise." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, thanks a lot." I, and I and I thanked him profusely for doing that because it, it's really cool to listen, particularly his voice. He's got such a great, great radio voice. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So, I I started listening to Rush right after Desert Storm in 1991. A AWACS weapons controller, an AWACS weapons controller that lived in our building, in our fourplex in Okinawa, Japan, at Kadena, 
said, hey, I know you're a conservative. I think you really want to listen to this guy. And I said, who are you talking about? His name is Rush Limbaugh. And I said, I have no idea who you're talking about. He says, well, my mom is sending me tapes, VHS tapes of his TV program. And I think you'd enjoy listening to him. And I said, yeah. sure, let me see. You know, I kind of went, yeah, okay, whatever. Conservative TV, hmm, this will be interesting. And I plugged it in. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched every episode on that tape about four times. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Okay. And I became a huge fan. And finally, we got him on Armed Forces Radio the first hour, you know, and I'd go home at lunch because he'd come on at noon, you know, when I was home at, mm -hmm. at Kadena and just, just to be able to listen to him, you know, and, and shovel some lunch in me. Okay. So I'd mm -hmm. been a listener for a long time, since 1991. In the invasion of 2003, we would fly flags for our friends. We'd fold them all up and everything and put them in a plastic bag, put them on an airplane and send them out, you know, and then we'd send them to, like my dad. My dad actually worked on the U-2 program. He made the hydraulic actuators for the flight controls as a young draftsman at uh, Cadillac oh, wow. Gage. And so I flew his flag on a U-2 on an operational mission and and... I've got the certificate and the flag and the and the coin I sent up with it uh, here, uh, you know, in my mom and dad's house. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I thought, you know what? I'm going to do one for Rush. I've been a little Rush listener for a long time. I'm going to do one for Rush. Uh, I flew it on an F-15 first, uh, a light gray C model, okay, with a guy by the name of Tiny Dixon. And, of course, he calls me on the phone. He goes, are you really going to send this to him? Are you really going to do this? I go, yeah, I am. Okay. Well, I want to make sure he gets it. Here's my here's my email to make sure he gets it. I said I said Tiny, I want one of your coins so I can send him one of the coins too. Okay. He goes okay, and he was <laughs> yeah. flying with the sixty seventh the sixty seventh Fighting Cock, so famous famous you know air superiority uh, uh, squadron. Uh, it mm -hmm. flew on uh, an F sixteen next. A guy by the name of Clam Bearden, and he said the same thing. Are you really going to send this to him? Are you going to send it? I said, Yeah, I sure am. He goes, shoot, then I got to kill something. <laughs> and I go, what? He goes, I got to make sure I kill something. I mean, I can't take his flag and not kill something, right? And I go, whatever, Clam. <laughs> and so later on, Clam, Clam sends me, um, uh, Clam gives me the certificate that he flew it, okay? And he wrote in the bottom that he killed a radar site that day with a, with a harm, okay? And he, and he wrote on the Ooh, missile... Wow. This is for Rush Limbaugh, okay, on the harm <laughs> that he shot at the SAM site that he killed, okay? Rush oh, got a big kick out of that. Cool. He thought that was hilarious. Then it flew that on an EA-6B, cool. okay? Then it flew on a KC-135, right. and then it flew on a KC-10, okay? On a KC-10. Anyway, uh, got home, folded it all up, sent it to him, uh, sent it to his New York office because I didn't have a, a address for him in uh, West Palm Beach. But yeah. I knew if I put it in a FedEx box and sent it priority, that it that it would eventually make it to wherever he was. So yeah. it went to the New York office first. They opened it, saw what it was, closed the box back up, handed it back to the FedEx guy and says, no, this is where you need to take it. Okay. And had it delivered to him. And his, his uh, former wife is the one who got it. And she opens the box and she emails him. And she goes, and, sh and she says, 
you know, OMG, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And, and Russia's like going, what, what, what? What's the matter? What's the matter? You okay? Okay. And she says, you cannot believe what you just got in the mail. And she starts sending phone pictures of the certificates and the flag all folded up and everything to him, okay? And I didn't think he'd get it. And one day, and, and uh, you guys have young kids, I have young kids, and, and getting them all around the dinner table and sat down is sometimes a real chore. And the phone's <laughs> yeah. ringing. We're trying to get food on the table. We're trying to get uh, Travis, who's only two years old, in his high chair. And, get every, and, and my son reaches around behind him, grabs the phone. and But we're listening to his show because he's talking about the flag. He's got the flag. And Ryan says, you know, Haseras, hello, how are you? You know, he's nine years old. And his eyes, he immediately, like, cracks his head back, and his eyes go real wide. And and he says to me, Dad, it's Rush Limbaugh. And I said, get out of town. You know, it's not Rush Limbaugh <laughs> on the phone. And he goes, Dad, it's the same voice coming through the computer. And I said, give me the phone. <laughs> and so in typical military fashion, this is Lieutenant Colonel Hesera. May I help you, sir or ma'am? You know, stupid. Yeah. Anyway, you know, but <laughs> here I am, you know, thinking to myself, you know, you know, who is it really? Okay. And sure enough, it's him. He goes, and he's laughing on the other end of the phone. He goes, he goes, Sluggo, it is really Lush, Rush Limbaugh. And I look at my wife and I'm like nodding my head. It really is him. You know, and for about a half hour, <laughs> we talked. For about a half hour, we talked. And, and he said, this is one of the neatest things I've ever been given. Mark, he says, here's my, here's my personal email address. This gets me anywhere in the world. Uh, we're going to have this thing framed. I want to bring you down to the house after we get it framed and get all the certificates framed and so forth. And, 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 uh, yeah. and so, uh, that was in, uh, May of 2003. And we've been friends ever since, you know, emailing each other back and forth. Uh, been to his house, had dinner at his house. Um, um, and this makes me a little emotional. I'm, I'm heartbroken that he's sick. Um, yeah, he, he was, he seemed, he seems to be doing a lot better though. He came back to the show. This yeah. Time. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. his, his, his chemo regimen was just knocking him down. And yeah, uh, in, yeah. in 2000 and 2009, our middle son, Jeffrey, 15 years old was diagnosed with bone cancer. We yeah. fought bone cancer for 14 months oh, no. and Jeffrey and Jeffrey didn't make it. And this mm. is this is the kind of guy Russia is, all right? Uh, mm -hmm. Metastatic osteosarcoma is a death sentence. And Jeffrey had his left arm amputated above the tumor, but it metastasized in his lungs about six months later. And mm -hmm. we, we knew we didn't have much time with him, but we were going to fight it anyway. And... Um, we told Rush we're in a we're in a bad way. Jeffrey's metastasized, and I got to get him to Houston. And Rush wrote me back, and he says, "No, I'm getting him to Houston." And I went, "What?" And he sent his Gulfstream 550 from West Palm Beach to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to take my boy and my wife to MD Anderson. And whenever Jeffrey had to go get treatments. Rush would send his jet to do that. And when Jeffrey was terminally ill, uh, we drove Jeffrey out there uh, to 
out here to Utah because he wanted to be with his family just before he died. And Rush mm -hmm. got after me. He said, I could have had him here in two hours and you took 19 hours in a van. What were you thinking? You know, and uh, he flew me and Jeffrey <laughs> home and then turned right around when Jeffrey died on August 16th. His wife, Catherine, flew up the next day uh, in EIB-1 and was feet on the ramp here and helping us do the funeral and everything. And um, they were gonna, we were going to fly his body back in EIB-1. And Jeffrey's container for his remains was a half inch too wide to fit through the cargo uh, hatch of uh, Russia's airplane. He, oh, chartered yeah. mm -hmm. he, he chartered another Gulfstream jet with a cargo door and took Jeffrey's oh, body wow. back here. Took Jeffrey and flew Ooh. Jeffrey's body back here with me and Jeffrey oh, wow. strapped to the floor. And here's the really cool thing. I saw the pilots and I said, this Gulfstream screams special operations. It was painted gunship gray and black. All right. Oh, and wow. he says, he says, all we do is take uh, SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force all over to their assigned tasks. Okay. And we do some of this humanitarian stuff. Um, and Rush called us and brought us out here. And uh, the pilot, Mark was his name turned around and looked at me and said, I think you and your son would be happy to know that this is the very tale that took the SEAL Team 6 snipers to Djibouti who freed Captain Phillips of the Maersk, Alabama. That was Rob O'Neill, the guy that shot bin Laden. I was flying in the oh, same wow. airplane that took Rob O'Neill to Djibouti to free Captain Phillips of the Maersk, Alabama. That was the airplane that, that brought Jeffrey's body back here to Utah. Yeah, Jeffrey's wow, buried wow. here in Orms, Orms City Cemetery. Yeah, yeah. What a Heartbreaking story. time. That's awesome. You know, yeah. burying, burying well, your son. I you know, just, you never, but, you never want to have your kids. What a, story, what a story to be able to yeah. tell. Yeah. I mean, wow. But that's the kind of guy Rush is, okay? And when you're around him, he is. <laughs> he actually came out here uh, while Jeffrey was still alive. He wanted to visit with him. And, and flew out here after his show, and and uh, mm -hmm. he was out on my in-laws' deck in Sandy, Utah, looking at downtown Salt Lake as the sun was going down and all the lights and everything. And I walked out onto the deck. Uh, he's got his his silver bullet, his diet coke in his hands, and I said, "What you thinking, brother?" And he says, "I'm enjoying the view and listening to the quiet, you know." And I just talked to him huh. and uh, out on the deck and mm -hmm. everything, and and. He says, I'm so sorry you're having to live through this. I'm so sorry that, you know, Jeffrey's having to go through this. And by this time, the tumor is just massive. The, when they took the yeah. tumor out of Jeffrey, the mortician, it weighed five and a half pounds. It was huge. It was massive. Oh, wow. Anyway, Gosh. but Rush wow. was, Rush, you know, turned to me. He says, he says, you understand whatever you need, you call me. Do not be bashful. Do not. <laughs> I was bashful about calling him when oh. Jeffrey was first needing to go to Houston. And when we had dinner with yeah. him at Christmas time, he says, don't you ever do that to me again. You know, he's an <laughs> incredible human being. Really funny. And, and you can imagine when he's not having to deal with, you know, people with the FCC and he's unplugged around a dinner table. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. just an <laughs> incredible conversation. And it's funny, and it's, I, I can oh only imagine it was fun, and 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 just the things that he talks about, and 
He loves aviation. He loves the military. But uh, that flag is now framed on the wall. Uh, he showed it to us. They've got a beautiful 600-pound bronze uh, statue of an eagle in front of it. And then right around the corner, walking into his study, he's got all the uh, certificates of the five airplanes that, fl- that flew on and the, and the coins that were put down on the bag and so wow. forth. And so when I told him I was writing a book, when we saw him, I said, hey, I'm writing a book about uh, you know flying takers and everything. He was very encouraging. Uh, I asked him, yeah. would you... If I asked you to do the forward, would you do it? He said, absolutely. And uh, uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, so, well, I, yeah, I, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by all that. And, you know, Mark, I'm sorry for your loss, too. I could just yeah. imagine what it would be like to lose lose a son. You know, that would be tough. Oh, brother. And, I hope I hope yeah. none of you brothers ever have to experience that kind of a health issue with one of your kids. It's just devastating and, and even more devastating yeah. when he, he died at home. He passed away at home on my youngest son's mm-hmm. birthday. When I get on the other side, I'm going to talk to him about that. Couldn't you, oh, you, know, yeah. you had to <laughs> wow. you had his eye on, on, on our youngest son's birthday, Jeffrey's birthday or Travis's birthday. Yeah. So yeah. Every, every mm-hmm. August 16th, uh, we celebrate yeah. Travis's birthday. He's 18 now. He was only a month old yeah. on 9-11. And then we go out and we light off about 40 Roman candles in honor of Jeffrey, you know. So oh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> anyway, but, uh, well, that, that, awesome. that, that is, that is incredible. And, and, you know, it, it, it really shows just what a human being Rush Limbaugh is yeah. and how selfless he is. And, yeah. you know, there, of course, I'm sure we have listeners that, that have different beliefs on both sides of the aisle yeah. or both. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what you believe, but yeah. we're all Americans. We all take care of each other. And that's really what it should always be all about. Yeah. And really what the message is. Yeah, it Absolutely. really is. And, and, I agree. and yes, and, and, and yes, he was huge in helping us, but I got to tell you too, guys, that other people, did all kinds of crazy stuff for us too. We made 38 round trips to the hospital in one month. Uh, No, excuse me, 52 round trips to the hospital in one month. And a member of our LDS ward handed us, uh, I think it was seven or eight um, like Maverick cards with $50 on each one of them saying, I know you're needing a lot of gas, Mm -hmm. you know, here's to help offset the gas, you know, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and you see this happening now. Okay. With some of these companies coming forward and, and making ventilators, uh, making masks, all these different things. And all of these people that are calling the president and he says he's getting phone calls from all over to help fight this and to help Americans and not just Americans, but everybody worldwide. You know, this has really hit Iran hard, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have to remember it's it's not the Iranian population that are our adversaries. It's their leadership. It's the terrorist groups. It's not the population. Yeah. Okay, we right, want to take care right. of them just like everybody else. We want to take care of the Chinese just like anybody else. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. about ethnicity or skin color. Or, let's just get through this and let's all sit down and have a post mortem right. over this. What did we learn from this? As a global community, right. what did we learn from this so that if it ever happens again, 
we can A, cut it off at the knees, fight it, find the compounds that are going to make it go away in our bodies, and and then yeah. when the time comes and we have to do this again, we just flip that one switch and the pharmaceutical companies line up, the military lines up, the industry lines right, up, right. the the you know, all of the government officials line up and everybody knows exactly what they need to do. Yeah. And immediately I think put that, differences yeah. aside. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. just and, and communicate because yeah. that's ultimately what's gonna get everybody through this. Yes, exactly. This is exactly. this is not about this is not about geographic boundaries. This is not no. about race. No. This is about this is about humanity. And, the virus doesn't care about I, boundaries. I, the virus does not care about boundaries right now, and we have to fight this. No, as a as a world community, not okay. Yeah, we've got our differences Absolutely. with the Chinese, with the Iranians, with the Venezuelans, with people even in Europe and and the Far East and so forth. Okay, all of that aside, let's get everybody healthy and working again. Right, and then let's sit down right. and hopefully. This will be the vehicle for saying, look, Iran, you guys were hit hard by this. I know you guys don't like us. I know you guys hate us and so forth, but you are still part of the world community. We are still part of the world community. How can we help each other here? If this yeah, ever exactly. happens again, how can we help you get through it? Is there something that you guys have that you can help us get through it? You know, and 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 literally bring the full might of the industries and communities and everything together to say, all right, differences aside for the next, you know, twenty days, we gotta we mm -hmm. got something that doesn't that doesn't care about age, doesn't care about boundaries, doesn't care about ethnicity, doesn't care about skin color. Let's fight this thing and write all of our lessons learned and then move on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Totally agree. Well, well said, think, brother. Well said. Yes, sir. Well, I think this is probably a good spot to wrap up. I'm going to just okay. call this segment one because, uh, yeah, we're going to be having you again, Mark. Okay. Um, it it and, has uh, to be we, segment we, one because I've got like a million questions I still wanted to ask. And I just know the yeah, three of us I know. all kind of well, taking just, in the stories. I think I'm we just, do. We are going to have to do another segment yeah. with more time. Okay. Well, and I'm just, so, uh, I'm just wondering. I'm just thinking ahead. I'm thinking ahead here. Uh, the next yes. time we get together, let's talk about the Suleimani strike and some things Ooh. that I've learned about that. Okay. There uh, you go. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about how you take down an integrated air defense system and how the, um, the Americans and the Israelis are so darn good at that. Some of those kinds of things. Huh. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's, that would be awesome. What a, <laughs> what a great teaser there. I, I can't wait for the next segment. So um, we may just have to rename this the Hasara pod. Oh no, I'm going to call it the knuckle dragging. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Tanker pod. Um, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? So we'll, we'll, we'll put this. Here's what we'll call it. The same thing I put at the end of every email. Sluggo sends. Sluggo sends. Every, every one of my emails always go. has Sluggo sends at the end of it because I'll tell you guys something else a little bit of a teaser. I'm thinking about starting my own podcast based on the graphics I sent you guys today because think of I, I sent you the graphic 
of Spliff Russell's F-15E with the anaconda uh-huh, on the yes. nose, okay? And since I yeah. know the history of the airplane, what it was involved in, I'm 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 going to start a podcast talking about specific airplanes. Oh, that's a great that's, idea! Wow, we can't wait. Any, any way we can contribute? Hey, we're there. And and speaking of that, the the Sluggo sends that that sounds like a perfect ramp swag sticker or t shirt or hat or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but I can I can see the wheels turning right now. Yeah. Hey, uh, Mark, do, do do us a favor for our listeners yeah. once again. Um, give us the title of the book and where they okay. can get it, and also. Okay. Uh, give us a plug. Give us a plug for, for um, yeah, the exactly. Wall pilot. So go okay, right ahead. So the book mm-hmm. is called Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit by Mark Hussera, forward by Rush Limbaugh, and you can find it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or anything. Okay. And the book has 22 chapters. Each chapter has like a moral value lesson learned at the end of each one of them, like courage, humor, innovation relationships and and so forth and there's 32 pictures that i took from inside my cockpit uh and mm. uh, and also uh, a couple pictures from a dear friend of mine dave parsons hey joe parsons who's an f-14 guy you guys really need to interview him he's incredible okay oh, and I'll, wow. I'll get you in touch yeah. with hey joe all right because Great. on oh, one mission awesome. on one mission he's out on my wing taking pictures of me while i was taking pictures of him it's 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 a really oh, cool that's, thing, and that's, that's, in, awesome. and that's in the book. That's in the book too. And our Facebook page, we don't have a website yet. We're working on that. Our Facebook page for Wall Pilot is just Wall Pilot. Okay, we do okay. Uh, customized graphics uh, from four feet to eight feet normally, but we can do bigger that are customized based on the squadron and unit you flew with, the bomb load you like, and we can put your names on the canopy rails we can even do the crew chiefs because we can do left side view or right side view so it'll have the alq 184 ecm pod the harms the sidewinders the uh amram mm. missiles and your name on it and so forth from any unit and um one of my artists has twelve thousand profiles all the way back to world war one we can do world war ii korea wow. war vietnam war and uh and again these are all custom based on what uh, the customer wants for F4s or so forth. And a matter of fact, I got like about six of them I got to finish today and get sent in. But uh, Wall Pilot is is the name of it. It's printed on vinyl. You can peel it off and stick it on any wall in your home or office. And I had one that stuck to a wall uh, ceiling for eight years in the same place. Oh, wow. Nice. Wow. Really good stuff. Yeah, really the, the, the well, detail perfect. on those are incredible. The photos that you've sent us and, yeah. and seeing what, what you have all produced is really amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah everybody I want to hear some stories behind stuff. some of those photos. <laughs> well, and what I want to do is I'll tell you the Eventually. story of how Wall, Pilot, how Wall Pilot began. It's three of us that we've known each other for over a decade. We're all, we're all plastic model airplane guys. And uh, mm-hmm. Scott Brown and, and Jack all have done profiles for decal instruction sheets. And my wife said, hey, I think I got another use for those. And that's how this happened. And I'll tell that story the next time we talk. Awesome. All right. Well, Mark, thank you again for chatting with us. I can't wait. uh, Can't wait for the next segment. I know a lot of our listeners 
uh, are going to be chomping at the bit as well. So we will uh, we'll get you back on as soon as possible, so okay. we can uh, so we can continue this conversation. Thank you again so much. Thank you for your service. Um, and and Aaron said it as well. My my heartfelt condolences for your loss. And um, you that. are an amazing American. And Mark, thank you again so much for for jumping on the podcast with us. Hey guys, it's been great yeah, to be on with you. We've been on a hundred and nine hundred and twenty minutes, so this has been good. And and uh, look there forward to coming go. back on with you again. And I want to tell all your listeners: <laughs> Ramp Check Global Swag. Go to the store and look at all the Ramp Check Global Swag. <laughs> Okay. And, thank uh, you. You love then, it. Because, uh, like I said, I've got a Ramtech Global patch that's in my visor on my in my Chrysler 300. When I flip the <laughs> visor uh-huh. down in front of me when I'm driving, it's right there. Love it. Nice. Love it. And Mark, love it. Um, thank other you. than your your Facebook account, do you have a social media that you'd like anybody to follow you on? They'd like to. <clears throat> yes, uh, I do have a website called MarcusArrow.com. Uh, I'm okay. on Twitter and uh, and and Facebook as Wall Pilot. The book actually has a Facebook page called Pumping Gas. That was the original name for the book, Pumping Gas. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then of course there's the Wall Pilot uh, page too. Okay. And uh, yeah, I sent you right. a, a, the the cover of the book so you guys can put the cover of the book up too if you want to if anybody wants to see it. And that is a picture I took Perfect. from the back seat. That's a picture I took from the back seat of an F fifteen of uh, over Alaska. It's a pretty cool picture. Oh wow! Nice, very cool. well. All right, we're yeah, flying in an F fifteen again. Flying in an F fifteen is another story we'll have to talk about. <laughs> all right well that uh that does it for this edition of the ramp check podcast thanks again to uh mark asara for being on the podcast uh don't forget you can get the ramp check podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify google podcasts and soundcloud uh aaron really quick uh where can we find you on social media yeah, so don't forget, you can also get the podcast directly through our website, too, at rampcheck.com. Yes. Um, and then um, on uh, Instagram, we're at, at rampcheckglobal. My personal Instagram, at Aaron Rumfollow. That has all my mm-hmm. personal life story on there. Um, and, uh, yeah, give us a follow. Check out our Ramp Swag. Uh, you know, you better listen to what Mark said, so get on there. <laughs> Ryan? Uh, you can find me at Rum Follow Me, just my last name, and add the letters M E. Pretty clever, eh? <laughs> Perfect. And uh, and once again, make sure you follow Mark's advice. Head over to the hashtag RCG Ramp Swag store, and uh, you get all your favorite stuff. And don't forget about our website, um, RampCheckReport.com. It's got all of the latest aviation aerospace news. Uh, yes, our news website dedicated. In, a lot of uh, changes happening in the industry, obviously, because of uh, what's been going on the last several weeks. You can keep up to date with all that. And uh, my personal Instagram is at trumfollow. Once again, that's at T-R-U-M, like Mike, F like Fox, A-L-L-O. And uh, Ryan, I believe you're up. Thanks for joining, everyone. Have yourself a good day. <laughs>